From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 227 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I couldn't be better if I tried. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. Well, I know that when this show is released, you are going to be starting a um, backstage magic adventure by Disney trip that you are you will be leading. So what are you looking forward to the most? What are some of the big things oh, you're looking man. forward to for this trip? Uh, I, you know, obviously I'm excited to see the current state of Imagineering. Inside the building. Well, a uh, lot of boxes piled up. That, and that's kind of what I mean with it. I'm just, I'm very intrigued on what it looks like in there. And uh, I, won't, I won't give any spoilers once I find out about that. You'll just have to go and see it for yourself. But I mean, I'll tell you, Michael. I'm not going to tell everyone else. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested in seeing uh, Imagineering and what shape it is in, truly because of knowing everything that has happened and i know that so many imagineers were working from home during the pandemic and such and a lot still are working from home so it's it's going to be kind of weird going to a place that feels that could potentially feel unused uh, in that way so uh it's that'll be interesting uh, i'm i'm very excited for the disneyland portions of it because since my last trip out phantasmic has been added back in mm-hmm. to the mix and so I'm, you know, fingers crossed they still do uh, the the reserve seating for Fantasmic that they used to do in the past. But the trip is a little bizarre reading about it. It seems like, uh, you know, you you did the trip years and years ago as as did I, and back then the trip was very much about taking you behind the scenes of what's happening so it wasn't like a lot of people always expected hey i'm gonna go to disneyland and i'm gonna have a vip tour guide with adventures by disney guides who will open all the doors for us and make sure that we get into everything without waiting and you know that just like a next level vip tour uh, but that that was never the case it was like okay you know, we will get you on attractions. We'll make sure you see the biggest stuff, but we also want to take you back to where the the railroad cars are housed and talk right. about that. Mm-hmm. We want to take you, you know, behind the scenes to look at the Indiana Jones Adventure Warehouse as well as Radiator Springs Racers and see truly behind uh, behind the scenes, backstage magic as what the trip used to be dubbed. But from a lot of the stuff I'm reading about it, it seems like it has turned into more of a VIP tour once you get to Disneyland. And it's like, hey, well, you know, we'll take you on a tour of some of the things and then you'll have plenty of time on your own to ride the attractions you want to ride. And so I, I'm very interested to see all how that's all handled. And ultimately, if I have reserved viewing for 
for uh <laughs> for Fantasmic and Disneyland Forever. I'm I'm totally happy with that because our last uh, ABD trip, Kylie and I on the night where we were in Disneyland, uh we instead of well, we had full intentions of watching Paint the Night and Disneyland Forever with our group, but it was an on your own moment for a little bit. So we left to to go get dinner and uh go to a, a brewery and have a couple beers and then we like we looked at the time as we were sitting there and it was like 30 minutes before the fireworks started and rushed over and we missed them. And at back then I told her like, Oh, don't, don't worry about it. We're going to, we're going to see Disneyland forever. It's going to be running for 10 years, just like the 50th <laughs> anniversary fireworks were. And ultimately that didn't happen. And every single time we've been back since it's either been like during the holidays or it's been during, um, you know, we went, for Pixar Fest the one year and so she has seen like every other fireworks show that's been available except for Disneyland Forever uh, even including the Halloween fireworks <laughs> like every everything so I'm very excited to finally after uh, I think it's seven years for us the last time she had the opportunity to see it she'll finally finally get to see Disneyland Forever and Good. those are the main highlights yeah, but I think a lot of people, they will be disappointed if they don't see some of those backstage <clears throat> opportunities. I know when we went, it was, it, it was backstage at Indiana Jones and the trains. And then for us, it was backstage at Soren because Radiator yes. Springs hadn't been built yet. And that was still really interesting. But, you know, if they're not, um, if they're not doing that and they're watering it down, the experience i think they're going to have some disappointed guests yeah and that's yeah that's the hard part of that trip is that i i feel like it's the it's one of the expectations that a lot of people have going into it that they're getting that vip tour uh and they end up leaving being like oh my gosh that was so much more like i know i know the first time i did it way back when we went to see the trains i was fascinated with it but you know half the other group could care less but the Soren moment you're talking about, which we won't spoil because I believe they still do at least time to time, maybe not every time anymore, mm-hmm. but the opportunity you get in Soren is truly, truly something you have to, you have to see it with your own eyes to believe it. There is no mm-hmm. video you could watch of someone having the experience they give you there that, that would ever justify it. So, yeah. uh, it's, it's moments like that that completely, completely turn people. But it's, it's such a fascinating trip for that too, because like the, the Henson studios, people think, Oh, we're going to see the Muppets, but it, it's not Muppet studios it's it's jim henson company so it's uh stuff like the dark crystal and earth Mm -hmm. to ned that was on disney plus and you'll see half the group being disappointed like oh i wish there was more muppets and the other half saying that was the highlight i can't believe i was on that that lot and that that all the going into the sound stage and and such so it's such the trip does so many different things that it's so cool seeing how the group reacts to the different parts of it. Yeah, I agree. We had an interesting experience with Soren, and it was, I won't go into what the standard experience is, but Carol couldn't, for mobility reasons, Carol couldn't experience the standard backstage um, Soren experience. So she stood where, um, with the computer operator, 
for it. And she was, because she could get to that area. And the funny thing is, so she's standing with him, and he's sort of explaining to her sort of what's going through it. But Carol could see the code running on the screen as the as they were running the attraction and carol it it was first of all it was an outdated code but it was one that um the bank carol worked at was still using so carol knew the code and so she was reading the code and then was discussing it with um with the you know the cast member who was the programmer and all that so she thoroughly enjoyed it that experience for her, I so, bet. No, yeah. that's that's cool. I I mean, I I love seeing backstage stuff like that. But I also, you know, I love seeing the control booths anywhere they have them. I mean, most of the time you can you can see them from like a you know an easy vantage point, like something like what Test Track was, where like yeah, you see it right up above you as you're going through the cars and stuff. But uh, I. Yeah, I I think that's so fascinating. It's uh that that's very very cool. Well, I hope you have a wonderful time, and when you're in Mickey's of Glendale, send me photos of, <laughs> of merchandise, and I'll let you know what I want. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> hopefully they're having a moving sale. Oh, I feel bad for saying that. <laughs> uh, well, they've delayed the move, so who knows? Who knows what's there? Uh, but um, true. <laughs> Plus, they're 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 going to be at D twenty three Expo, so who knows? Maybe they'll be getting they're getting in new merchandise now, that, or they're getting oh. or, or or last year's merchandise is finally being offloaded the uh, ships out in Los Angeles Harbor. Yeah, I, I'm fine with any of those scenarios. Uh, you know, <laughs> older stuff they're trying to get rid of, stuff that never made it, stuff that I get from D twenty three before that officially happens. I, I'm okay with all of those. Uh, but I don't need to be spending the money. So uh, <laughs> if I can spend other people's money, maybe that'll be fun. <laughs> well, I hope you have a wonderful time. I'm sure you will, no matter what. In our previous episode, we were joined by Colin Aris to talk about Walt Disney's connection to The Wizard of Oz. And Colin is the chair of OzCon International, host of the Oz Connection YouTube channel, and director of Flying Sofa Media. We are continuing our conversation with Colin this week, so let's continue our journey along the yellow brick road between the Walt Disney Studio and the Land of Oz. Let's jump forward now. 1985, Return to Oz. After all this time, what prompted the studio executives to finally produce an Oz film? So I think what I need to link in here is to go back a little bit to around Mm -hmm. about 1980. So 1980 is a really weird period in the Walt Disney Company history. You know, Walt's been gone now for around 15 years at this point. Um, And the studio is not really quite sure what it wants to be. And it's starting to experiment with darker material. Um, the producers at the time were also responding to great features such as the Star Wars film, and it was getting very, very experimental. And I think this is the only possible way that Return to Oz could have ever been created. As you said earlier, it's a very 
dark fantasy. Uh, I think Craig said was terrified of Return to Oz when it mm-hmm. came out, and we'll get into that. But essentially, Disney were trying to bring in new talent into the Walt Disney Company, and they had their eye on people that were inv- involved with people such as George Lucas or Steven Spielberg, who were starting to get a big name for themselves. And Walter Murch came up, who was a fantastic editor at the time, and he wanted to have a go at directing. And one of the production chiefs, Tom Wilhite, and um, was trying to encourage Merch to come on board in terms of what kind of film he would like to make. Now, Walter Merch is a huge, and was he, sorry, was he still around, hopefully, <laughs> a huge Oz fan. His mother had read the books to him as a kid, and he said, if I'm going to come on, I want to do something on the Oz books. That would be the deciding factor. So Tom was happy with that. Two reasons. One, he wanted to do something experimental. Disney still owned the rights to Osmer of Oz at this point in 1980. I think the rights fell away to Osmer of Oz around about 1983. And also Tom's partner, uh, Willard Carroll, is a huge Oz fan. So, you know, I'm sure he was strong-armed by his partner, Willard, to go ahead with this production. So he greenlit a movie called Oz. So it was not even called Return to Oz at that point in time. And Walter Murch was pretty clear that he wanted to merge together the Land of Oz and Ozma of Oz into one book because Dorothy did not feature in the second book in L. Frank Baum's sequel. She appears in Ozma of Oz. So that's kind of how this come about. Um, Ron Miller announced the film, uh, but it was made clear that it was not a sequel or a continuation of the 1939 movie. But this is where things get a little bit a little bit unclear because it kind of is a sequel to the 1939 mm-hmm. movie and oh, it kind absolutely. of isn't. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of its downfall as well, because anyone going in expecting a happy clappy, you know, we're off to see the wizards. This, that is not that kind of movie no. at all in any way, shape no. or form. It's the, the, the Oz series does have dark elements, but L Frank Baum was always implicit in his, he used to write lovely introductions and he would speak to the children, his introductions in not a condescending way, but he was also very, very clear that he wanted to write an American fairy tale that did not have the morals and horrors of the European books at the time. So whilst they had had dangers, it was not that dark, Merch, for some reason, really saw dark in this and made it far darker than the books ever were, also taking elements from TikTok of ours and the Emerald City of ours, and created something very, very dark. And again, I think that's because at the time, Disney were trying new things. Um, But it it hit many, many obstacles. The... Tom Wilhite was out within a couple of years. We were starting to get to this period in time when the CEO was being removed. We had uh, Eisner starting to come in during this production. We also had um, a couple other people come in, like Paul Molanski, and they looked at what Merch was doing with Return to Oz, and they were very concerned. So it was getting wildly over budget. It was actually filmed in the UK, for the most part. So anybody watching it, that's not Kansas. That's Salisbury Plains, in, uh, not Kansas. Uh, the Munchkin country in The Return to Oz is actually the same woods as was used in one of the Star Wars films as well. So at the time, it was cheaper to be in England. 
But the Eisner had concerns that why are you making this really, really dark movie when Wizard of Oz is one of the all-time greatest musicals? And in merch was getting so far behind and was having some um, depression issues and was struggling a bit because he'd not been a director before and couldn't handle this constant changing of producers reporting into him. He ended up ultimately getting fired during the production. So the entire production ground to a halt and it was nearly coming to the point of either cancelling Return to Oz altogether or replacing Merch as the director and, and trying a new strategy. Now, Merch had some powerful friends um, and couldn't speak up for himself because he was in quite a bit of psychological distress. He, he has made this quite clear himself in, in several interviews. And George Lucas and Steven Spielberg uh, actually got heavily involved. In fact, George Lucas made it clear to Disney that, look, he will come and look at this movie and he will make and help recommendations to ensure this movie gets made to help get Walter Murch reinstated and stood up for Walter. And it's ultimately Spielberg, but particularly George Lucas, who are responsible for Return to Us being finished, that convinced Eisner that this was a good movie, a well-put-together movie, and the only person that could finish this would be Walter, as this was his vision. Also, Gary Kurtz was a producer on Star Wars, was also involved. So... You know, pretty much George Lucas saved this movie. A lot of people, not everybody knows that, but mm-hmm. the re- actual uh, the actual overall budget was reduced to twenty eight million. So originally it was going to be in the Sahara Desert. It was going to be in all these beautiful places, and it was all just then right. We're doing this in England, or we're doing this in the studio. But Merch did get to finally create the movie that he wanted because of the likes of Star Wars and um, Star Wars is Gary Kurtz and George Lucas. The biggest problem with this was was that Eisner um, started then shoehorning in things from MGM. So the Ruby Slippers, they paid around about a million to use the Ruby Slippers in this movie because MGM had the rights to that. You see them a bit later with the Gnome King and things. And that, I think, also helped confuse it. But when they promoted this, particularly in America, it was almost promoted as a happy clappy movie. And it's really, really not a happy, clappy movie. It is not when not, it, no, not, well, not when it opens with poor Dorothy getting shock treatment. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> no. there's no other way this movie would get made apart from that era of Disney. Just Dorothy getting shock treatment is not in the books, and it is terrifying. There's no two ways about it. I mean, the Gnome King starts trying to eat the characters at the end of the film, which is also quite horrifying, as well as we have a witch in it called Mombi, who is from the second book, but is also a combination of a character called Languideer, who changes her heads from the third book. And it is very, very dark. Uh, And when you market it as being a happy, clappy movie, and people are turning up thinking they're going to get a musical, of course they're going to be upset. In England, it was not marketed in that way. It did much better over here. And and it's become a cult classic for that reason that I remember seeing it in 85 and 86. And my my mum would not let me go to the cinema to see it because I was about seven at the time because she thought it looked too dark. And yet, for some reason, I'm someone who's very, very squeamish about horror. But this film does not bother me quite as much as it did Craig from the sound of it. (laughs) Now, one of the things that I do appreciate about this film and then, then we'll get into what we think about it today, <laughs> is that the 
characters, I think they were very faithful to the drawings in the books, like Jack Pumpkinhead and TikTok and, mm-hmm. and some of the and I and, and even Dorothy is much more like the Dorothy in the book. Mm-hmm. I so think Dorothy, so. yeah, in the book, she's very steadfast. She's not a weepy Dorothy like the Judy Garland Dorothy. And that's mm-hmm. not a slight on Judy Garland. It's just different. Dorothy is an everyday girl who stands up for herself and her friends, no matter how uncomfortable she feels. And and drawing on what you said, Michael, the, the TikTok, the um, Jack Pumpkinhead, Belina, they're all based on the designs by John O'Neill, who was this fantastic illustrator of the books. But the characterizations are much, much closer than the MGM versions. And I, I love them for the same reason. You also have a good link with the Jim Henson company were involved in the creation of those creatures. And Brian Henson, Jim Henson's son, it was his first job who not only puppeted Jack Pumpkinhead, but is the voice of Jack Pumpkinhead as well. But this is a film I watched at Halloween. Halloween time, (laughs) because it is so dark. So, Craig, after all these years, what do you think of the film Return to Oz? I think I, I'm a little bit uh, – I'm trying to look at the nicest way to put it because the problem is <laughs> I don't think it's a great movie in general. Uh, <gasps> it has it has that nostalgia for me because I mm-hmm. just remember being terrified watching it as a kid. But uh, I just it, – it doesn't really hold up in my opinion. And you know, even it's not even as scary as it used to be, uh, which I would hope for as I, I get older, but uh, you know, I, I still, I I've watched it, I think twice in the past, like mm-hmm. five years. So I'm giving it a fair shot. It's just not, it's not connecting to me the way mm-hmm. I, I want it to. But I mean, there's some, there's some very, very cool design work happening in it. Uh, just, it, I, I think, I think it's a beautiful movie to look at, even when it's very bleak, uh, but mm-hmm. it's, it's not great. <laughs> yeah. So now uh, I, I'm curious, Colin, Flying Sofa mm-hmm. Media, is that named after the flying Moose yes. sofa creature. Okay. Yeah, the the, the gump. So when I when oh, I created yeah. Fly Sofa Media, I wanted a name that had an Oz connection that not everyone would get, but it would also sound a little bit quirky. So that's where the flying sofa media come from. And I love Return to Oz, but uh, you know, we're Oz geeks, we criticize and critique, and I, I I see its flaws. I still think it's the best sequel, the best of um the other movies out there, but um, there's no way that movie would have been made today. And if it had, it should have had a Wizard of Oz before in the same kind of vein, in that same kind of style before we got to that. Yeah, I I have grown to appreciate it more. But um, yeah, I, I certainly see the flaws in it. I remember uh, going to Disneyland and the Main Street Electrical Parade even had a float mm-hmm. for it with some of the characters. But yes. it wasn't there very long. <laughs> but the, no, it burst into the music flames. remained in the soundtrack for a long time. <laughs> so the music was in the soundtrack. And the um, the French version of the canal boats, you can hear that music that was played on the floats for the electrical parade of that Disney um, float itself. So that's another little link in as well, but the float itself burst into flames. That's why it wasn't there very long. 
Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing it, and then it was gone. But that was the days when they tried to update the Electrical Parade with recent films, and it was meant then for then those floats would only be there for a season, and then it'd be pulled. But like Pete's Dragon, one of Craig's favorite films. And then um, that wasn't even meant to be a permanent um, float, but it was too popular to remove. So I suspect that either Michael Eisner or Jeffrey Katzenberg just burnt it to the ground because they really disliked the movie in the first place. <laughs> so, well, the next time we see Disney return to the land of Oz in a significant way was with the opening of the great movie ride at the Disney MGM studio. But they went with the 1939 MGM version for this attraction. And I'm assuming it's due to the box office failure of return to Oz. I think it's a couple of elements. So, at the time when the MGM Studios was being um, brought together, Eisner recognized that Disney did not have enough Hollywood history movies to be able to fill out that park. So he um, did a deal with MGM to bring in more content. And yeah, he well, he just didn't like Return to Oz in the first place. So and then the fact that it did fail uh, and it only became even now it's more of a cult cult popularity that the Wizard of Oz was the ultimate version and people would respond to that in the ride itself. I did experience that ride in 2016, fortunately, and it, it was great to see it. But I think it's also added confusion. So Often, I think people actually think that the MGM Wizard of Oz was a Disney movie. <laughs> and I think this ride had a part to play in that, for sure. Because you you go through, don't you? You go into the Munchkinland sequence. The Wiki Witch of the West appears, and then you do get to see Dorothy, the Scarecrow, and the Tin Man. It, it was a lovely little sequence in that ride, and I do miss that ride. Um, but one of the good things as well to recognize within that is that originally they cut a tornado sequence. From the original mm-hmm. ride, there was going to be a tornado and there was going to be a Wizard's Throne Room. Well, of course, Mickey's Mini Runaway Railway now has really that cyclone sequence in there. Yeah, That's- and it's a wonderful effect. And then the, and the Wizard of Oz source uh, tornado sequence became the um, <laughs> Fantasia Sorcerer Mickey scene. Yeah, absolutely. The, yeah. It was so iconic, it was reused. But when you do go through Mickey's Monorail Railway, you can, you know... Give, give rest in peace to the great movie ride, but also have that little nod to what was there before by finally getting to see a tornado sequence. And I do love the ride. I love them both. Yeah, I do too. I, I think both were wonderful. And it's a shame they decided not to update the great movie ride. But okay, we're coming to Craig's favorite version, I'm assuming. <laughs> and I have not seen it. So Craig, you're going to have to jump in here in this discussion. Um, 2005, the Muppets wizard of Oz. I, I was sure this was going to be on Disney Plus, and it is not. So mm-hmm. tell us about this Muppet classic. Oh, classic's a strong word, Michael. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm saying that for Craig's benefit. <laughs> so I don't like it either. <laughs> so. it's, I will just start off with Craig is right. It's a terrible Muppet movie. Now, I am a big Muppet fan. I think a lot of us that are into Disney, into ours, Muppets is a, a natural a natural evolution of that fanhood. So I, I, when I heard this was coming, you think, oh, my goodness, I've got Disney, Muppets, and The Wizard of Oz being merged together. What can possibly go wrong? <laughs> so it was 2005. So it's just after Eisner secures the rights to the Muppets. So this is the first film that they put into production. Um, 
I, in 2004, so they placed it in principal production then. It was out in 2005. That says to me that this, this movie was rushed in the first place. And it's not... It, in some ways, it is truer to the books than the original MGM is. And then in other ways, they ruin it. So Dorothy is set in the modern day. She lives in a trailer. She wants to be like an American idol star. This is where I think Eisner coming in towards the end of his run with his really bad cliched kind of stuff starts to happen. And it's more a collection of sketches than it is really a good story. And it's not even a good Muppet story because the jokes generally don't land too well they really push that Quentin Tarantino is in this movie and has a fight sequence at one oh my point. <laughs> it just the even the jokes with um, oh so Gonzo. So it, you've got Dorothy is a shanty. I've got no issue with a shanty. You've got the um, Kermit is the scarecrow. Gonzo is the Tin Man. You've got Fozzie as the Cowley Lion. But you've got Pepe Le Prawn as Toto as a prawn. And it's, I just don't know what went wrong. The Muppets Christmas Carol is probably the quintessential mm-hmm. Muppet movie. And that's because they stay true to the original story and then place the Muppets within this. With this, they didn't stay true to the original story and just did a weird sketch show and put a lot of names behind it. And I also think it was fell victim of the fact that a lot of the key players now are no longer in the Muppets. So Frank Oz has gone. Um, a couple of the other big names have gone from this production and it just doesn't land very well. The only, I say saving grace very loosely, is Piggy is phenomenal as not just the Wicked Witch of the West, but all the four witches. So you've got the Witch of the South and the North are your good witches, and you've got the Witch of the East and the West, and she's about the only thing, I think, that works in all of this. It It's terrible. I've seen it twice. I still hate it. It's probably not on Disney Plus because nobody likes it, um, but I'm interested to see Craig's Craig's full thoughts on it. I just don't like it. I mean, I've only watched it the one time. Um, I <laughs> I do consider it a Muppet movie because it technically is a full-length Muppet movie. I mean, <laughs> I, I know that's a terrible way of just like saying, like, this is why it deserves to be placed right next to the Muppet movie, Great Muppet Caper, and all of the other good ones. <laughs> uh, but, like, yeah, I mean, it is a movie. It just... It doesn't work. And it was at a very mm-hmm. awkward time with the Muppets where they still did not know what to do with them at all. Mm-hmm. And I know there was a lot, uh, there was just a lot of hands on it too. Yeah. Like if I can remember, like it, it went through like four or five different writers all working on the screenplay. And mm-hmm. I think this was like, which I'm, I'm very nervous not to like detract to make this all Muppets, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think uh, Adam Goldberg that went on to write the Goldbergs, I think he had a hand in this and now he's going to come back to the Muppets and he's working on that Electric Mayhem show. And it's like, that's oh, not, you know, I, I'm tentatively excited for it, but mm-hmm. you didn't really do a great job the first time around. And then the music was just a mess. I know Michael Giacchino had a hand in mm-hmm. it, but like it just, it seems to me that 
it really it really was probably extremely rushed and then there was too many people chipping in in different areas that it didn't it didn't all come together and uh, i you know who knows why it's not on disney plus it could be just because it's that bad and no one cares about it it could be is something with rights and the music mm. or production companies behind it i i'm not exactly sure but it's you know it it's kind of an insult towards the Muppets and it's kind of an insult towards Wizard of Oz. So we're, we're better off without it on Disney plus. Oh, oh, now I've got to see this. Yeah. You, you definitely <laughs> I, need to see it. Michael. <laughs> I know it got 36% on rotten tomatoes. I got that mm-hmm. far in, um, in, okay, am I going to rent this and watch it? But I just ran out of time. So yeah, you can get it. I mean, it, it's out there on DVD. Although some of the prints of that have been pretty, pretty crappy. Um, yeah, it, it, it's. I don't know why it's not on Disney Plus, other than Disney have got a weird, weird way of releasing older films on Disney Plus. It, there's no they reason why it, it shouldn't be there. They're not even doing it anymore. <laughs> They're not even really. <laughs> I mean, I've been looking at what's coming up in mm-hmm. Disney Plus releases. There's no classic films anymore or anything. In yeah. There. I've been looking out for some of the early tunes coming on there, which just nope. <laughs> it's no, very they've frustrating. Given, they've given fan. up on that. So now, despite the lack of popularity from Muppets Wizard of Oz, the box office failure of Return to Oz, Disney returned to the Land of Oz again with the mm-hmm. in when they released in 2013, Oz the Great and Powerful. What convinced them to return? to oz so what convinced them to return to oz was it wasn't their original plan so the writer those so let me think about this so the screenwriter mitchell mitchell kapner actually let's go back to wicked okay so wicked is a stage musical that's been running since around about 2004 on broadway and wicked is based upon a new book um, that was written around about 2000 which is meant to be an alternative take to the wizard of oz from the wicked witch the west point of view where she might actually be good rather than evil and how is wicked really seen and, and i'll talk a little bit about how i think this has shaped some of the disney company's current focus on villains being um good in a second Mm -hmm. so mitchell katner felt that it was a missed opportunity to not do something with the origins of the wizard of oz he actually met with sony with some ideas around this um movie originally and was turned down so he, he approached disney and when he came to speak to disney spoke to his president sean Bailey to commission Oz the Great and Powerful and Sean Bailey liked the idea of going back to do something on the background story of the Wizard of Oz um, because he wanted a male protagonist because he felt that there was not many male protagonists in the fantasy world which just goes to show he doesn't really understand the world of Oz because it's all about strong female empowerment Um but it was essentially that collaboration that brought it about that. And also I think by that point, Alice in Wonderland had been a successful film and they wanted to try and capitalize on a, a brand new series, but it's essentially wicked. This is the wicked effect. 
So whilst the great and powerful focuses around the story of the wizard played by James Franco and the wicked witch of the West, but she's not wicked initially until she's spurned by James Cameron and then turns evil uh, in a really over the top, very stereotypical cliched way where she bites an apple and literally turns demonic green because she's been spurned by a lover. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that originally they were talking about doing this as a trilogy. So they essentially rewrote re- their relationship return towards they ignored that, but this being a prequel and almost did it as a love letter to the MGM movie, the stylizations of the Emerald city, the witch being green. One of the interesting to, to note is the witches weren't really green until Margaret Hamilton's Wicked Witch of the West in MGM, but everything had to be done with the legal team to make sure it didn't cross over with the MGM rights owned by Warner Brothers. And that's how you got this film. And the intention was to have a trilogy. It was announced that there would be a follow-up sequel to Oz the Great and Powerful, which has never moved any further forward at this point in time. But I'm not so sure if Disney have fully dropped Oz the Great and Powerful. The, you may have heard that Wicked is being made into a movie, um, yes. mm-hmm. and it is coming in the next couple of years. They've now announced it's being split into two parts. It is a great musical. It's not really true Oz. <laughs> if you're an Oz fan like me, the Wicked Witch is Wicked. It's just a nice alternate universe version. Um, so I do wonder if they will come back to this series, because it didn't do that badly financially. It made... 500 million from a 200 million budget at the time. It probably wasn't seen as quite as popular as Alice, but it was popular enough for them to announce a sequel. But Sam Rami is the uh, director of this, who was also the director of WandaVision, not WandaVision, sorry, uh, Dot Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And it shows he, that was not a great film. This is not a great film. Not great at character at, building characters with depth, very um, cliched in his approach. Um, I think that had a lot of factors to play with why this was not that great a movie. I don't know what your guys' point of view is on Oz the Great and Powerful, but it's lacking. You you hit it right on the head. Yeah. Like everything, especially about Raimi. I I rewatched it recently, and it felt to me like extended episodes of... um, what was that TV show? Once upon a time. Yeah, I felt like it could have fit right in there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I, when I first saw this, I was unimpressed, and when I rewatched it, I was unimpressed with it. We um, first. I liked the little China girl, mm-hmm. and that was about it. <laughs> <laughs> so. We, I saw this with my husband in 3D. I came away and thought it's an okay movie, and then after rewatching, it's kind of like it doesn't stack up very quickly. It's ve- it's a CGI mess. I also love the China Girl. I think it's because it's one of the few things that is true to the Bomb Box. So in the yes. Wonderful Wizard of Oz, there is a China country. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a, a link into that. The biggest failing for me is the Oz books. The women do not need a man to save them. At the end of the film. Franco or the wizard makes moves on Glinda and you just, and then when you now think about all the stuff that's known about Franco, that just feels even more icky than it, than it did before. (laughs) 
I do hope if they come back to it, they just, you know, they, they can come back to it and come back to it 10 to 20 years later if they want to do a follow-up. I believe it was going to be a prequel to The Wizard of Oz still, but, you know, so they can have an older wizard. They don't need Franco. Yeah, it just seemed like a soap opera to me in a lot of ways. But Craig, yeah. what about you? Did you want to get into it more? I don't really have that much else to say about it. I mean, it just, it was a visual look that I did not care for at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I, I, just i i've been struggling a lot with sam raimi because mm-hmm. of mostly because of multiverse of madness but like looking back at what he's done like the more i think about it i really only like evil dead 2 and then uh the spider-man 1 and 2 and everything else mm-hmm. i just don't i don't think he's a great director really uh and definitely not on that project and yeah, mm-hmm. I just, it, it was a mess. It was, it was one of those ones where like I was in a stretch where I was buying every single Disney movie, regardless of whether or not I liked it. And I, I remember watching uh, Great and Powerful. And I remember that opening, the opening scene with the castle. Um, I, I'm talking about the Walt Disney credits because, you know, it's, it was mm-hmm. one of the ones where they did a stylized version of the, the Walt Disney logo. And, it was like, mm-hmm. oh, that's cool. And then after that, I was just tuned out the entire time. So I never ended up buying it. And like, just to show how drastic that is, I did buy Maleficent, even after thinking it was oh, one Craig, of the worst movies I've ever film. seen. Yeah, that's see, <laughs> I have Oz, Great and Powerful. I do not own Maleficent. Hey, Craig, the one thing you would like about the DVD on Oz, The Great and Powerful, with the Blu-ray is there's a nice little uh, documentary on Walt Disney's connection to The Wizard of Oz. If I ever <laughs> find... It's going to have to be the Blu-ray. It's not going to be the DVD, but... It is uh, the if Blu-ray. I, if I ever find the Blu-ray for like a dollar, I will pick it up. This <laughs> <one>. <laughs> See, I had the opposite effect. I actually quite liked Maleficent. Um, I don't know why. Both me and my husband did like Maleficent. I haven't seen the sequel. Oh, to be geez, fair, we'll get around time. to it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I didn't mind it. But again, this a lot of this movie come about from laziness. So it, it's rewritten. It doesn't even really take many strands from the the Bourne books, and there are little things they could have used in there. But it's a lazy, lazy stab at doing their version of Wicked before Wicked come out. And then Maleficent is also another version of Wicked. Uh, Cruella, which I quite liked, all these films that are now the villain being the good guy, it's all Disney's lazy version of Wicked. That's what frustrates me. And I know, listening to the show, you guys have a similar feeling with that, with these, these villain movies. Yeah, yeah, the villains misunderstood. And then they ruined some of the greatest Disney villains. Of all time. But yeah, and I also didn't visually, I didn't care for it. I I, I felt it didn't look Aussie to me. Mm -hmm. It looked cheap CGI, which is very much what Multiverse of Madness looked like. Yeah. Now, if you were asked to consult on Disney's next Oz project, and they said, okay, what Mm -hmm. would you want to do? It could be anything in the parks, a film, Mm -hmm. whatever it may be. What would you, what would be your dream project? Uh, so there's, there's two things. I, I'd love to see a, a Wizard of Oz land like Disneyland in some way, but it would need uh, a big film or series to take off. So my big thing would be that we have a fleshed out series of the Oz books. So not a film, 
do you know like a Netflix size side Netflix style with a good budget and cover the actual books and flesh out the characters and the drama and we interweave the different storylines and stay true to the books. I think that would be a really great way of bringing back Oz every time someone stays true to the book. So another Disney link is the Marvel Oz comic book series that came out, which was um, written by Eric Shannara, who's a massive Oz fan, who comes to OzCon and is also an illustrator and artist. And that was a very popular series for Marvel because it stayed true to the books rather than trying to do someone's updated version of it. Uh, and I, then you would get to see all of the different stories, Osmer of Oz, in, in a truer way. And you can still make it a little bit darker. You can still add in, you know, intense sequences. But that's what I'd love to see. It's long overdue. Mm-hmm. That would the, be great. Go ahead. You've got. Sorry, you've got the Amazon series coming, haven't you, of The Lord of the Rings, which is a prequel. You've also got on Netflix a Narnia series coming. So the time, time's right. Come on, Disney. You want to do something with us, do this. Yeah, and, and stick to the stories, the books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be Absolutely. great. Yeah. I mean, they've so, got 40 books to cover, you know. Okay, there is, there's some doozies in there that can be stripped out, but, that you know, that series could run for years. Mm-hmm. It could be. It's very rich. There are lands that no film has covered yet mm-hmm. in the world of Oz and characters. Absolutely. Yeah. So now that uh, now that our listeners have had time now to listen to more of um, Walt Disney's connection to Oz, let's talk about OzCon again, because we talked mm-hmm. about it previously. Again, can you tell our listeners about OzCon International? And if they're interested in going, what what could they expect? So OSCON International has been around for six, since 1964. So it's a, it's a really, really old convention that goes back way before I was born. And what you can expect is a plethora of, of panels and presentations on Oz books, Oz movies, strange interpretations of Aussie politics. But this year we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of Ruth Plumley Thompson's Kabumpo in Oz, which is her second sequel, the second author after L. Frank Baum. We are celebrating the animals and how they are represented in Oz. So we've got some great presentations on how within media, you know, some animals in Oz can talk, some animals can't. And we also are raising a glass to the 100th year anniversary of Judy Garland's birth, who was 100 this year. And despite um, my discussions on her production of Dorothy earlier, she's still a phenomenal performer and mm-hmm. was still a great um, version of Dorothy, even if not unique to the book. So we're going to be raising the glass and talking a little bit about her film history. Uh, and because we're all, we're all Judy fans as well. Of course we are. <laughs> um, we just have a lovely, we so basically, when you come along, we, we tend to run from like 9am till 9pm and it's a very casual environment but you'll have a schedule you'll be able to see what's on because it's our first year back it's a little bit smaller than previous years as we inch back into 
this pre-COVID world. So it's it's contained in one day, but it, next year it'll be back to a three-year convention running from Friday through to Sundays, and we'll have a virtual one in October. And we'll, we we change the theme every year. It depends on various things. We've also got a um, film producer coming along and giving his take on a new film called Dorothy, which is a dark take on The Wizard of Oz. He's going to be showing his short film of that there. So you get to see something before the public have really seen as well. Oh, great. And so how can our listeners learn more about OzCon and get tickets and things like that? So if you go over to www.ozconinternational.com, all the information is on there and you can book your tickets online. You can also follow us on Facebook at OzCon International and you can get updates on OzCon and Oz content on YouTube's The Oz Connection. Or you can email me at chair at ozcon-international.com and I will answer any queries. If you want to come along to OzCon on the 16th of July, please come over and speak to me. If you want to come and hang after OzCon, we're going to go over to the Academy Museum on the 17th, and we're also going to go over to Disneyland on the 18th. So I'd be very happy to see some of you. We're over in Pomona, which is about an hour's drive away from um, LA and not so far away from Anaheim as well. So come up and see us. You'll have a great time. You can talk about Oz, learn about Oz and the Disney connection with Oz. And I, I have got some plans in the future to actually run a, a Oz convention that focuses on all of these themes from Walt Disney Company and Oz, because there's a whole three day convention there. Just from what we've talked about now, we've we've only tipped, we've only really scratched the surface there. Mm hmm. Oh, that's exciting. I'd be very interested in that one. Well, thank you so much, Colin, for coming on and talking about Walt Disney's connection to The Wizard of Oz. And folks, you might remember a few episodes back, I said, you know, always when you see me in a park or something, be sure to, to come up and say hello. And because you never know, because I mentioned that a, a listener said hello to me and we got to talking and I said, and I invited him to be on the show. Colin is that person. I met him and his husband. We were at the DVC uh, Members Lounge over at mm -hmm. Epcot, and he came up and said hello, and we chatted. And that's how we came up with the idea to talk about Walt Disney's connection to Oz here on the show. So, Colin, thank you for walking up and saying hello, or we wouldn't have had uh, this great conversation. Thank you for having me. I, I love to talk about Oz and, and Disney anytime, Michael. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. And I wish you all the best. And I hope you have a great time at OzCon International. Oh, thank you. And I hope to see you there sometime, too. I, I'll i definitely look into it, for, especially when you talk about Walt Disney and, and his connection to Oz. And now it's time for This Week in Disney History. Okay, well, it is my turn this week, I remembered. Uh, so I'm going to start, well, of course, it has to be July 17th, but it's not going to maybe be the year you anticipated, because okay. I'm going with July 17th, 2005. At 10 a.m., Disneyland hosted a ceremony to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the park. So Art Linkletter, who helped host the opening in 1955, was there. So was Bob Iger, Michael Eisner, um, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Boy, it's hard to even remember those days. And Diane Disney Miller, Walt's 
eldest daughter, are also there. And Diane Disney Miller um, reread her father's original dedication speech. And later in the day, at 4.45 in the afternoon, Walt Disney's opening day dedication speech was shown on jumbotrons all around the park. The celebration was called the happiest homecoming on earth, and it included a new fireworks show titled Remember Dreams Come True, probably one of the best of the Disneyland fireworks, and two new parades, Walt Disney's Parade of Dreams at Disneyland and Block Party Bash at Disney California Adventure. Steve Martin opened the Disneyland, the first 50 Magical Years exhibition and accompanying film in the Main Street Opera House. The original park attractions all featured one attraction vehicle painted gold. There were 50 hidden Mickeys placed around the park with the number 50 displayed in the center. Most of Disneyland was refurbished and repainted. The park was crowded with guests each evening during the celebration to view the Main Street Electrical Parade before it glowed away into what was called permanent retirement. Huh. So anyway, so I bring this up because that was Disneyland's 50th anniversary. Now, now, Craig, tell us what happened for Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary. How did it compare? I mean, I can barely remember it because so little <laughs> happened. Uh, what what even happened again? Uh, they I, know, I was a weird there announcement that, that played yeah. over the parks, and mm-hmm. the welcome show came back that morning for the first time. And mm-hmm. technically, that was the debut day of Enchantment, but technically mm-hmm. not Harmonious because Harmonious debuted the day before. So. Uh, those, those were the three things and then food. So that was yeah. it. Yeah. And really it was just like any other day in the park. You didn't even get a button. That's really ticked me off. Cause I was there for that 50th anniversary as well. And, um, yeah, so that, that was, that was it. So I just thought it, it's fun to, to compare and contrast the two 50th anniversaries. Yeah, uh, very, very different. But you know what? At the end of the day, I, I don't want to upset Walt Disney World fans with it. And I don't want to hear this stuff where it's you guys just like Disneyland so much more. Will you shut up? We love Disney World. Mm-hmm. Disneyland came first. Disneyland deserved the more grand one. Walt Disney World also deserved way more than it got it, to. But, it did. It really did. <laughs> but, you know, if if I'm going to also sit back and think about it. Yeah, Disneyland... Disneyland set the bar over the top uh, for for what should happen with big anniversaries moving on in the future. So the only thing we can hope is that the hundredth is uh, it finally redeems it in some way. Yeah, I I don't know. I just was I felt bad for the folks for whom the Magic Kingdom was their their home park. And uh, and the one they grew up with, they deserve so much more on that special day. You're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, Craig, what do you have for us this week? Well, mine, I think, is uh, it's fascinating for me, at least. And that's uh, on July 21st of 1999, the first ever Disney Fast Pass ticket was given out at Walt Disney World. Oh, and wow. 
I, you know, for some reason, I guess maybe it was just I was younger and didn't think about it as much, but I forgot that FastPass started so late. I mean, we're talking in 1999, so we're talking 28 years into Walt Disney World. I know that wasn't really, this wasn't predominant at a lot of amusement parks, at least I, I never thought it was, uh, but obviously it became a mainstay at Walt Disney World and 1999, uh, uh you have to think about the next part of that too is that technically that version of fast pass while it stayed longer in disneyland in walt disney world it truly only survived until fast pass plus in 2013 so that lasted 14 years and then fast pass plus lasted like six seven years there because it ended in technically 2021 if we want to kind of say it in that point even though it ended with the pandemic so i won't even give it that i'll say i'll say it went six years but uh now we've we've moved on to you know obviously lightning lane and i just it it makes me think like that fast pass was when you start to think about it in that way original fast pass for as much as disney fans loved original fast pass it really wasn't around a a super long amount of time, but it had a major impact. And Mm -hmm. I'm like sitting here wondering, can Lightning Lane in its current iteration, can that last something like 14 years? Or will it not not make it that long? And I'm not sure. I don't think it will. Considering they're already sending out surveys about Genie Plus, I think that, and, and the magic keys out here at Disneyland, and all that, I think they already know there's problems with the system. So I yeah. think they're at some point they're going to start tweaking it. Yeah, so they, they they're going to have to tweak it, and who knows? Maybe maybe they have a different one in the future. But uh, it's it's wild to think that you know eventually they would have they would have added. A, a system like this it was inevitable as it, it it became more prevalent these systems became prevalent in other areas too and uh it just it seemed like something like this was always going to be the way eventually and uh i just i really i really don't i don't know if there's another impact this big as in Walt Disney World as Fast Pass was. Like it was it was it has to be one of the most significant things to ever happen mm-hmm. to that resort. Uh even well, potentially greater than a new theme park. It impacted other theme parks too. I mean yeah. non-Disney parks. They all they had they had their own versions of Fast Pass as well. So it it was an impact on I think the theme park industry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, a huge, huge date, 1999, July 21st, Fast Pass Pass was given out. What a big day. Yeah, and a lot of people would like to see it come back. (laughs) (laughs) Me included. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that there were surveys going out about the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World that we were just talking about to guests about – you know, did did it meet your expectations? Why or why not? Basically, is the is the gist of it. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, though, with surveys, sometimes it's like I feel like they do it just just because it's protocol at this point. Get the data, but don't actually do anything about it. 
Yeah. But I'd love to be wrong. <laughs> well, I'm always worried that they'll do it in order to cut more things. And they're using the surveys to justify cuts. Well, Craig, whilst you were gone, there was big, since we were talking about uh, Muppets Wizard of Oz, that, that classic television <laughs> special, they, there was, I was all excited because I thought there was, and, and I don't know if this is when you were on The Wish, there was a big, supposedly a big Muppet announcement coming, and I think they announced it like the day before that, oh, at this time there's this a big announcement dropping, and Sam the Eagle was involved, and, also, and it was, there was a new logo. And the new logo looked surprisingly like the original logo for The Muppet Show to me. It had a strong resemblance, and I thought I thought they were going to announce a new Muppet movie, a new Muppet television series. I was, as long as they were weren't announcing they were returning to Liberty Square, I was all excited, and I thought a new logo, all this fuss over a new logo, and then they had Sam the Eagle standing at the podium with the new logo, and and I guess it's a photo pass um, opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yep, and. I thought this is it. This is your big Muppet announcement. And I was so disheartened by it. <laughs> yeah. It's um it, it's weak and honestly, I it's a logo. Like I don't think it warranted an announcement at all. Just change the logo and then fans are gonna be like, Oh, that's cool. They have a new logo. Nobody would have noticed. I mean, there <laughs> well, you would have. But <laughs> there are there are plenty of websites dedicated to the Muppets. They would have noticed, and it would have been news. But yeah, it didn't. They didn't need fanfare from it. It's it's a logo. It's not like you know other companies have rebranded, and it's just like, well, is it is it still the same thing I knew and loved before? Yeah, well, that's good enough for me. Let's leave it at that. So I, yeah, I, it, it's kind of silly, but you know, good for them. If that's, if that's what counts as big news now, then keep the bigger ro- news rolling, I guess. <laughs> I don't even know. It, it just confirmed for me. They don't know what to do with the Muppets. If this is big news that gets them all excited over there in old, the halls of Disney, then I thought it just, just does not bode well for the future of the Muppets. Blame the Imagineers. They're in charge of them. Yeah, that's right. They're under under the Parks parks Service now, Parks Department, whatever it's called. So um, I want to say Parks and Recs, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> <laughs> we could use a Parks and Rec Department for Walt Disney World and Disneyland. Well, they might function a whole lot better. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Well, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on the different shows on the Disunplugged Podcast Network. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. And you can find me on uh, by email, via email, not on email, <laughs> Craig at DisneyInfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can connect with me on Twitter at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm michaelbowling-connectingwithwalt. Instagram, I'm michaelbowlingthediz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connectingwalt.
If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyPlug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.